an awakening, and I think we're getting it. I just don't know how many are going to awaken. I remember one time, oh, this was so long ago, that I was in the book called Philippians. That's it, Philippians. And, of course, I don't need to even introduce any new material because I know that those messages are just etched in your hearts and minds. We are living in turbulent times. Hello. These turbulent times have been brewing, even if incrementally, for decades. And part and parcel of that has been the systematic cultural shift in our country away from freedom of speech, away from freedom of religion and association to oppression of personal convictions. Just a few months ago, this state of ours voted down a religious freedom bill that was essentially just a reproduction of the federal, what's called RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which ironically was introduced back in 1993 by Chuck Schumer. It was passed unanimously in the House, and it missed unanimous passing in the Senate by only three votes. And Bill Clinton then signed it into law. The main version of that same bill was supported by Catholics and Protestants and Jews and Muslims and Native Americans and yet it was summarily defeated after a nearly incoherent testimony by Maine's Attorney General Janet Mills. It was just another relatively small but very definite step towards the impending crackdown on the public expression of one's opinions and philosophies that might just make someone else feel bad or feel slighted, or feel insecure, or feel worried. As an illustration of the times, I trust that we are still all aware of the recent decision, as recently as June, I believe it was, made by Bowdoin College to unrecognize the Bowdoin Christian Fellowship. It made national news. And then just maybe, I think, three years ago now, perhaps, if it's been that long, Colby did the exact same thing with the Colby Christian Fellowship. And so what I start out this morning with is going to be a little opening piece of fiction as we jump back into this book of Philippians. And though it's fiction, I hope you realize it is not far-fetched. And in fact, I think it is imminent. Tomorrow morning, before the coffee pot is even dripping, you're scrolling down Facebook, and you notice numerous posts from Drudge, about a dozen pastors in various places around the country who have been taken into custody for hate speech violations in pursuit of a peaceful society. These pastors have been removed from public view under the guise of fomenting social discord. To your amazement, one of the stories is local. 
and you're shocked when you read the name of your pastor as one of the twelve who is now awaiting a bail hearing. What do you do? Well, let me pause there now. The scenario, though, that I'm spelling out here is certainly nothing new. In fact, it's at least 1,900 years old. This morning I'm going to go for a moment to Acts, specifically chapters 4 and chapter 5, where the Jewish leaders are seething angry because Peter and John have the audacity to be proclaiming the name and the power of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And this Jesus is the one who just happened to heal a man. And so there was buzz all around the town. And we are told that the result of Peter and John's proclamation of that miracle through the powerful name of Jesus resulted in 5,000 new believers. The Jewish leaders were panicking because this Jesus is cutting into their territory of power and control. And so the leaders have to put a stop to this. We pick up in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. But so that it will not spread any further, it being the gospel, the good news, that the resurrection from the dead is real, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them, that is Peter and John, to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to heed you, rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when the Jewish leaders had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. Shucks and by golly, didn't keep them from trying and didn't keep them from beating them, just for good measure. On account of all the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. That was about 61 A.D. The civil magistrates have come against the Christians, ordering them to silence. Silence not merely about pointed Christian theology per se, like the salvation message, but in the example that this is expressly referring to from Acts chapter 4, what stirred things up, as I already mentioned, was the healing of a man who had been born lame from birth, who was now in his 40s, but healed by Peter and John through the power of Jesus. The disciples' response, however, is informative, if not instructional. When Peter and John had been released, they went to their own companions and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? 
The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Meaning, God is in control regardless of the circumstances. And now, Lord, they continue, take note of their threats. This prayer is revealing. Lord, if I could paraphrase, they're scaring us. They're not playing by the rules of the Roman Empire. They don't want God, in other words, to ignore the flagrant violation of their rights. That's all given. But that is not their primary concern. That is not the focus even of their prayer. So what is their actual prayer request after this rather long preface? It's in verse 29. Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And now, what happens after they pray? And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now listen, evidenced by what? Healing crusades? Miracle fests? People falling down and shaking uncontrollably or laughing hysterically. Well, what the text says in verses 23 through 31 of Acts 4 is that when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. That's what was evidence that they'd been filled with the Spirit. Now, I have been all around the theological track, from charismatic to neo-Pentecostal to fundamentalism and all the way back here to the free church. And I cannot once, not once, can I remember in any venue, in any environment, anyone when I was on this side of that whole spectrum of the whole charismatic thing, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, okay? Don't misunderstand that. But I don't ever remember great abuse over there, by the way, but also some really good stuff that this kind of church really needs to take note of and learn from. But that's another issue. I don't ever recall any preacher, any evangelist, any tele whoever, whatever, ever bringing up the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit will be evidenced by speaking the unpopular word of Christ with boldness. Huh. Hmm. Go figure. And this entire episode, in fact, remember, began with a controversial miracle. But the miracle isn't the point. The proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and the wonder-working power of God and redemption is what is central. And it is the point... It is the point. 
because political changes and social injustices and cultural calamities were exerting their force to silence declaration of the very reasons that God came to earth in the person of Jesus in the first place. Let's go back now. I just want to backtrack a minute. Back to chapter 4 of Acts, verses 25 and 26, which is a direct citation of Psalm 2. Just for the record, I'm noticing here in my thing, I think I have the wrong reference up there, but it's Psalm 2, it is not Psalm 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The earth in the opening verse here of of Psalm 2 is that the earth is raging against the Holy One, the only true God. The world kingdoms and the world powers are uniting and strategizing against the God of heaven and against His anointed one, Jesus. And it is all for nothing. You're talking here about satanic forces fomenting global hatred against the Creator of the globe and everything else. Which is why it is Absolutely vain. It is useless. In the psalm, the Creator is trembling, I say sarcastically. So much so that he can barely record his response to the global plan for his defeat. The psalm resumes, The Lord who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, that's Jesus, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, For, O kings, show discernment. I'm giving the Son dominion over the earthly powers, and you better be afraid. Because He too is the Creator. (laughs) You wonder why God laughs? Seriously? Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He does not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. Last verse of the psalm. (laughs) How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Duh. Why do the believers in Acts 4, hundreds and hundreds of years later, with all the Scripture at their disposal that's been recorded in the Old Testament to that point, why do they resort to Psalm 2 in their prayers in their present distress? It's because it is a scary time for them. Even Peter and John were human. 
They didn't go around wearing a sandwich board. I was thinking today, man, probably most of you don't even realize what the heck that is. It's called cheap advertising in an era gone by. You'd just wear it with straps and there'd be a front and a back to it. And you'd print whatever your message is on it. And it's not like the disciples were going around with a sandwich board saying, Persecute me! Persecute me! I'm so looking forward to being beaten, ridiculed, mocked, and scourged, and crucified, or murdered, or whatever. They had the same fears. The narrative continues into Acts chapter 5. Once again, the leaders. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in His name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. How dare you! It's interesting here that it's implied that if they had changed up their message to absolve the Jews of their, listen carefully, of their historical, factual role in Jesus' crucifixion, that things might have gone much differently, much better for the disciples. But truthful reality bites the guilty hard. And the guilty protest. Oh, don't go getting all historical on us. Stop fixating on truth. You're making us feel bad. Wah. If you're willing to skew reality, I think maybe we can work with you. Maybe. This is called political correctness, first century style. About 60 A.D. But the boys, remembering their prayer in the preceding chapter, was for what? Proclaiming the word with boldness. So they're again given strict orders not to teach in the name of Jesus. We pick up in chapter 5, verse 28 and forward. Peter and the apostles answered, Look, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death, didn't quite catch on to the political correctness part of it. Whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Oh, he is condemning them, but he's also saying, but look at what God has offered you. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So, back to my opening fictitious story as I began. Twelve pastors are in custody and one of them is your own. What do you put out in prayer? Lord, get PB released now! I hope so. <laughs> the gospel has to go forth. Protect him. Watch over him. Comfort Barbara. Break down the bars of oppression. And Lord, find him a good lawyer. Okay, look, all good prayers 
the kind I myself, I assure you, would be praying. So now we come to Philippians. And here's Paul. Jailed in Rome. But Paul's a different kind of guy. And he's in a different era than the 12 pastors in my fictional account. And Paul does live in a different system of governance. All of that is true. But Paul's words of encouragement to the church that has been one of his biggest supporters are purposely focused on a heavenly view of his situation. And so this is what he writes, picking up where we left off, I don't know, eight years ago. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren of the Philippian church, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Paul ended up in a Roman prison because the Jews were outraged by his proclamation of this new religion as far as they saw it. And so they wanted him silenced. And the Romans, candidly, the Romans didn't care. They didn't care about theology. They didn't care about their little squabble. But the Romans were caught between politics and expedience. They just wanted peace so that Caesar, their boss, would be pleased. But then Paul had to go and demand appealing to Caesar, appealing the charges that the Jews were levying against him. And they had to comply because Paul was a Roman citizen. But you see, to Paul's supporters, to the church of Philippi, the mission was in danger. It was all coming crumbling down. Their leader, the outspoken evangelist, the missionary, he was incarcerated yet again. And so Paul energizes them saying, on the contrary, you put way too much stock in me. The mission is right on track. And as a matter of fact, Paul's ministry is even more viable now than when he was free, preaching to the Jews. Such that Christ now has become known even more broadly than when he was free roaming about. I don't like this passage. But I want to remember it. So I ask you, does Paul sound bummed out? Or does Paul sound energized? Additionally, Paul says that somehow, and I don't quite, I really spent some time just meditating on this. I don't, I mean, I sort of get it a little bit, but but not really. But Paul says that somehow his imprisonment has actually bolstered the courage of other believers. Oh. You got Paul in jail for speaking out? Ha! We'll show you. Let's go, guys. Blah, blah, blah in the name of Jesus. Ha, take that. Poke it in your eye. Now, I don't know if that's what was going on. <laughs> that's my interpretation, okay? Do what you want with that, which is probably put it in the wastebasket. But 
most of the brethren in chapter 1, verse 14, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. The Jews figured that they could use the political structures of the day to accomplish their religious or their spiritual goals. But again, as I've said so often in the last couple of years in particular, in God's kingdom, there is no separation between the two. The political and the spiritual, or if you prefer, the secular and the religious, are artificial divisions established by man to justify divine rebellion. Think upon that one. Mr. and Mrs. Christian, brother and sister Gumball, who believes that you can be too political. The political and the spiritual, the secular and the religious are artificial divisions established by man to justify divine rebellion. Let me exemplify with just three examples. If abortion is a political issue, then I can be pro-choice and I can be a devoted Christian. Hmm. And aren't there hundreds of thousands of them in this land of ours? Let me answer that for you. Yes, there are. If homosexuality is a political issue, I can be pro-homosexual marriage and yet also be a devoted Christian. If racial equality is a political issue, then I can be a bigot and a devout Christian. You see how that works? Satan is crafty. Satan is crafty. Everything is a spiritual issue, which is why political solutions and political power will never, ever change the hearts and the minds of mankind. Paul was human, and Paul, to be sure, got depressed, but he fought to maintain a godly perspective on life putting everything in that context as we see in verses 15 through 18, which have always, by the way, tended to trouble me a bit. Let me just give you the context by reading verse 14 again. Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And here's how he summarizes this. What then? Well, in other words, what's my take on that, Paul says? Well, only that in every way, whether in pretense Or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, and he's emphatic. Yes, and I will 
rejoice. So like I said, this tends to trouble me, and here's why. I don't know exactly what he meant by those who preach. I mean, I I get the whole selfish ambition thing. That's not a problem. But those wishing to do me harm are preaching Jesus. That's the one I, I just, eh, I don't get that. Time and again, this is where, where my struggle, how it plays out in actuality. Time and again, over the years, as I listen, usually only momentarily because it's about all I can stomach and I'm ready to throw stuff at the television or pull the radio out of the wall or whatever, is to listen or watch momentarily some TV preacher and thinking about how sometimes there's only a shred of gospel present in the message, but so much junk surrounding it. Paul says he rejoices even when scurrilous preachers proclaim Christ. So, again, and maybe I'm making too much of this, but this I, I'm telling you, this is where I go, uh, so does that mean that I should not be critical with all the... the <laughs> I almost had an unsanctified expression come out of my mouth right there. When all these bogus, tainted, warped, but again, containing a kernel of truth there of gospel, are presented, am I supposed to just go, oh, well, praise Jesus. Praise the Lord. But maybe I can answer my own question. I don't know. The key words here are, as Paul writes, that Christ is proclaimed. Paul's not saying that any religious proclamation that happens to throw in the word Jesus is proclaiming Christ. And I can say that dogmatically because we know that Paul gives pointed criticisms in numerous places specifically about false teachers and false preachers in some of his other letters. So we've got to take that off the table. So then what was Paul referring to here? Well, I do know that in the day, itinerant preachers used to get their support by People giving donations to them, which may not be cash, but certainly included, could include cash, but basically giving them housing and feeding them and, and those are taking care of their, their needs as they went around the countryside preaching religion or Christ, whatever it was. And so basically it was a pretty good living. And because it was a pretty good living, some of them would basically beef up their resumes, to put it in a 21st century culture. And they would come up with some contrived reputations that they were really some bigwig that they really needed to listen to. And again, we know this because Paul mentions this in other letters. But Paul's saying, I think, that in spite of bad motives, some did preach a gospel that was fairly coherent. So Paul's heart is such that, look, whether the person preaching is a charlatan who really is in it just for the money, or they feel like they are spiting Paul by encroaching on his territory while he's in jail, Paul says he's just going to rejoice regardless that the message is getting out. 
And why can he say that? Because God can and God will use a gospel preached with truthfulness, even if with less than honorable motives. Remember that the power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul writes to the Roman church later. He reiterates basically the same thing to the Corinthians. To the Corinthians. So here we have Paul. He's in bonds under house arrest. But the message of Jesus is not in bonds, nor is it under house arrest. Because the message is empowered by a supernatural author. Let me point out that persecution was the norm in this epic of church history. And there has been persecution throughout the ages since Jesus has come in various parts of the world. And isn't that stepping up in recent times? So how is it that persecution seems to generate new life in the souls of a believer? At least those who are the real deal, who are watching, who are listening, who are praying. What I'm going to read you is a quote. I'm not going to tell you who it's by yet. It's at some length. Stay with me, and then we'll finish. Quoting, The meetings of the Christians are described in how the Christians love one another. Yet the unbelievers sneer at the way Christians call each other brothers, because among pagans, such usage always means fraud. We share everything except our wives. You, referring to the pagans, share nothing except your wives. Every misfortune is ascribed to the Christians, as if earthquakes never happened until 33 A.D. You say that the community suffers because of us? We are unprofitable in business. Yet we have to live and we have to buy and sell like everyone else. The only people to suffer are the pimps and magicians. Meaning in that day, the Christians wouldn't patronize them. Can't say that in this day, can we? But the state really does suffer when the honest and hardworking can be executed because they are Christians. That really does decrease the public revenue. So are we the only ones who are innocent? Well, we are certainly the only ones living by a philosophy that makes us so. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. And this is a famous quote now coming. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. When you chose recently to hand a Christian girl over to a brothel keeper rather than to the lions, you showed you knew we counted chastity dearer than life. And you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. That was written by a man 
who never applied for a vanity license plate to his chariot. We know him as Tertullian. His full name was Quintus Septimius Florensis Tertullianus. I was supposed to be a little lighthearted to come up out of that, okay? Never mind. Joshua chapter 24. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I've known numerous Christians over the years who have that very verse memorized, if not memorized verbatim, at least paraphrased. You hear it thrown out there. I believe that when it's uttered from somebody, a Christian living in the Middle East, I don't believe it of North American Christians. Now, that's a sweeping generalization, and there are wonderful exceptions. But the state of the church of Jesus Christ, which needs that awakening, is prima facie evidence of what I just asserted. It's one thing to read a verse about serving the Lord, choosing to serve. Here's the line. You're going to go serve all them guys or are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ? And by the way, we got an AK-47 pointed at your head or a knife against your throat. Be careful what you say. It's going to cost you something. We need an awakening. And I'm not talking about an awakening, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years down the road. I think we need an awakening in the next few months. I pray to God that what I am thinking, I am wrong. But one way or another, we are going to be tested in this. We're going to be tested about our resolve. We're going to see how many of the the wonderful verses that we've committed to memory, if we've committed any to memory except John 3.16, or God helps those who help themselves, Thank you. At least a few, yeah. And see, that also kind of illustrates my point. We have been so sheltered and protected in this country. And if you think the open borders, just one small example, just happens to be be because of an incompetent leader, you are sadly deluded. Not just mistaken, deluded. Let me have you stand. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I just want to go out and preach Jesus now. <laughs> Better yet, I'm going to go home and I'm going to turn on Brother Joel. <laughs> he just makes me feel so good, as does Victoria. Dear God in heaven, God in heaven, we need an awakening. Bring the awakening first to the household of God and then to the nations. Lord, you've called out the ta-ethne. You've called out the chesedim, the holy ones. Lord God, 
awaken your church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.